welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about believing in yourself, medical errors, and what sex is like in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, sometimes in my clinical practice, I see a lot of trends, and so over periods of time and and um you know one of the trends that i have been seeing lately is a lot of women who are in relationships are telling me that they get into their head uh when they're in bed if you will so they're into their head they're wondering about what the partner thinks about them they're wondering if their thighs are too big they're wondering if they're um, butt is too small. They're wondering if their breasts are too small or too large, and they're not in the moment. And, you know, I hear from a lot of people as well talking about or worried about what other people think. It's called FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. And of course, we all become a bit of a party to that. Um, you know, you start paying less and less attention to what makes you be you. We pay much more attention to what's online, which is perfection and filters and everyone looking amazing. Unfortunately, FOPO or fear of other people's opinions is part of the human condition because we're all operating with an ancient brain and there's this craving for social approval. That helped to make our ancestors cautious, careful, savvy but that was thousands of years ago today we don't have the responsibility for a failed hunt but we have the responsibility and that failed hunt could mean your entire tribe was threatened but we have something more powerful than that we have social media we have instagram TikTok. not sure how much longer we'll have TikTok, but um we have it everybody looking amazing being perfect thinking that we have to live up to that and maybe we aren't as good we're not we're too worried that we're not as good that a lot of people i hear say you know i, I don't have instagram i don't go on i don't want to i don't want to feel badly about myself but if you want to perform and be your best and perform at the highest level possible for you the fear of what other people think about you could be holding you back. My mother always said, nobody knows you're living, which sounds kind of harsh, but it is true. And what she meant was, you know, if you were riding a bus and you got up and changed your seat, nobody is thinking about you changing your seat. We always think that people are looking at us, staring at us, judging us, but they're oftentimes they're not. Sometimes they are. And, and sometimes people have opinions about other people that aren't even are not true and they have no business having those opinions either um pardon me if i've told you this story before but i i was running a race with a friend of mine a few years ago and it was in the woods <laughs> this race and when i got there there were like 10 different categories different colors of ribbons and i saw that we'd lowered our <laughs> belief in ourselves <laughs> and we were way in the back with the purples and I said, come on, let's get up to the yellows because otherwise we're gonna be here all day. We're never gonna get out of here. There's 5,000 people here. And my friend said, no, we can't do that. We're not yellow runners, we're purple runners. I said, who cares what kind of, nobody knows we're living, who cares? Let's just go up there. And she said, that's kind of harsh. 
And I said, come on, let's go. And then she went up that we went up and it was about five or six groups up. And, um, you know, with the elite athletes, <laughs> we had absolutely no business there, but who cares? And then she went up and proceeded to cut the ribbon. I said, well, for crying out loud, <laughs> now if you want attention, cutting the ribbon. So we tied the ribbon back up and the race began. And fairly quickly, now we're at the front with all the runners, but fairly quickly, she tripped on a tree root. I hope she's not listening tonight. And she fell and 5,000 runners ran by her. Nobody gave her a second look. No one gave her a first look. I waited on the other side till the 5,000 runners ran by. It was probably our punishment. That's my Catholic guilt coming through. Our punishment for moving ourselves ahead. And I went over and she said, nobody knows I'm living. Nobody stopped to help me. I said, exactly. And I mean, of course I did, but I'm her friend. But she was very surprised at that, that nobody actually stopped because people were thinking about their own race. And in life, people are thinking about their own race more often than not. But there are those people who give an opinion, who provide their unsolicited opinion. And sometimes we worry about what other people think. And in fact, it has almost become an unproductive obsession in this modern world in which we live. But there's so many negative effects that can impact your performance. So you've got to start paying attention, more and more attention to what makes you, you, your talents, your beliefs, your values. And you, you, if you conform to what other people think, you're going to harm your potential. You're, you're going to impact your happiness. You're going to start playing it safe. You're not going to take risks or you're not going to be happy at the end of the day. You're going to fear being rejected or ridiculed. And this is a fear and it's an unwarranted fear. You may surrender a viewpoint that you have, or you may not raise your hand at an opportunity if you can't control the outcome. Maybe you won't go for that promotion because you think you might not be qualified because maybe somebody said, you're not qualified for that. How could you even go for that? That happened to me one time. Uh, when I was going for a job, a lot of people were saying how they wanted, you know, somebody, you know, with all of these skills and how could they ask for that? And, and, you know, and I thought, I took a look at it, thought, you know what, I'm going to go for this, but I'm not going to tell anybody. And, and people were stunned because they should have gone for it. They could have gone for it. And the only reason I got the job was one person was late for the interview. The next person had a very sorry outfit on. I mean, she, really, I hope she doesn't have a fear of my opinion. <laughs> she wore jeans anyway. And, um, and then, you know, I had a suit on and <laughs> spoke the language anyway, had really prepped. I actually really prepped for that interview and I got that job. But if I had listened to other people who did not think I was qualified and people did actually say that before during and after, <laughs> quite frankly. But sometimes you just have to forge ahead and think, you know, I'm going to go for this because we have this desire to fit in. And a lot of people, you know, some people can have a paralyzing fear of, of being disliked, but some people can just worry about what the neighbor thinks or what a friend thinks or what a colleague thinks or what the guy at the gas station thinks. I mean, sometimes it can be far reaching and we don't realize that. And that 
this underscores why we need to condition our minds, train our minds, so that the tail isn't wagging the dog. I'm sure you have experienced FOPO in your life, fear of other people's opinions, but there are certainly ways that we can dampen the intensity of the stress response. You know, I, I am sure that I that this goes on a lot in different neighborhoods, in schools, with parents, um, in the dating scene, um, amongst friends, and um, you know, in so many different at work, I am sure that that this happens and and sometimes it can hold you back and it can cause a tremendous amount of stress. And it definitely relates to confidence. And confidence is the sexiest thing on the planet, you know, and everybody has skills and abilities and talent, but you just need to find yours. We're talking about fear of other people's opinions. And I happen to tell two stories that sounded like, whoa, she must have all the confidence in the world. But no, <laughs> of course not. There are so many times in my life, of course, we don't focus on the negative too much, but so many times in my life when I had fear of other people's opinions. In fact, you know, one of the biggest controversies out there amongst women is the stay at home mom or the work outside of the work in and outside of the home mom. And of course, many people have opinions on that, especially the women in the neighborhood and depends on what neighborhood you live in, but some can be pretty nasty about that. And so, you know, I remember, uh, somebody said to me one time, uh, that she didn't work outside of their home because her children needed her. I thought, well, I need me too, but it makes you feel kind of badly, you know, like, and so, you know, I was actually ascribing to her nastiness, if you will, but just thinking like, you know, oh my gosh, you know, is she a better mother? Um, and so I kind of worried about her opinion, if you will. Um, and so there are so many times that we wonder if we're doing the right thing, what would somebody else think? We ask people's opinions. Um, when we, we really have to conquer that fear of other people's opinions. And in order to do that, you need to cultivate more self-awareness, which is insight is one of the greatest gifts one can have. We, we typically go through life with a general sense of who we are, but, um, you know, for a lot of our life, that's okay. That's enough. You get by, but do you want to just get by or do you want to be your best while being less fearful of other people's opinions? I have a friend who just like, she did not care whatsoever what anybody else thought she was going for it. And, you know, and she did. And the biggest thing about her was that she just felt so great about herself, you know, and just, she just didn't worry about anybody. So we all need to develop a stronger and much deeper sense of who we are. And one way to do that is by developing a personal philosophy. And that's just basically a word or a phrase that expresses your basic beliefs, your basic value, who you are. So it can be one or two words. It can be very simple. It can, but we'll, we'll get to how to grab that one, <laughs> uh, that personal philosophy that for you to own. Um, but you know, you've got to think of it as a guiding compass. It, it guides your thoughts, your actions, and most importantly, your decisions. And so, you know, you might be like, um, you know, 
always be grateful. That can guide your decisions. It can guide your thoughts. You can choose, put forth best effort. I'm just pulling these out of the air. They're from my Catholic school days. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it can be always be competitive, something like that. So in order for you to come up with your own personal philosophy, I saw something online, um, a few questions you can ask yourself. So one of them is when I'm at my best, what beliefs lie just beneath the surface of my thoughts and actions? Think about that. When I'm at my best, who are the people that demonstrate characteristics and qualities that are in alignment with mine? So, you know, who do you look up to? Who do you think is, is doing it? Who's doing it well? Who I, I, I always admired my friend who just was, she just did her own thing. She never harmed anybody. She wasn't hurtful. She wasn't mean. She just had the self-confidence to say, this is how I'm living my life. Who are the people that demonstrate those characteristics, those qualities? You know, think about them. That's a really important thing for you to think about. And, and do you admire them? Do you respect them? What are the qualities? Ethics, integrity, kindness, caring. And what are some of your favorite quotes? What are some of your favorite words? And once you've answered these questions, and I'll just quickly go over them again, when I'm at my best, what beliefs lie just beneath the surface of my thoughts and actions? Who are the people that demonstrate characteristics and qualities that are in alignment with mine? What are the qualities? And what are your favorite quotes, your favorite words? Once you've answered those questions, circle the words that stand out to you and cross out the ones that don't. And then when you see what you've got left, you can come up with a phrase or a sentence or a mantra that lines up with who you are and how you want to live your life. You can share that draft with a loved one or somebody that you care about or think a lot of. You can ask for input and then fine tune it from there. It doesn't mean that you never go to people and ask their opinion. We all have challenges in life. We're all not sure what to do, but that personal philosophy is very important. And then also go to some trusted people whose opinion you respect, but commit yourself to live in accordance with your personal philosophy. Remember it. And then start in your own home. Tell the, your family that you love them. Take some risks, you know, be, do something you never thought you would have done do public speaking. A lot of people are afraid for that. Go for that promotion. Anyway, do things that will engender the opinions of others. And then when you feel the power of FOPO holding you back, acknowledge it, reconnect to your philosophy and, and your objective for your own life. I just wanted to read a text message. We were just talking about developing a personal philosophy and fear of other people's opinions. And um, somebody wrote in, hi there, you're totally describing my sister. And what you're talking about on your program is going on exactly right now. So I'm listening very intensely to find out how I can help my sister because what I'm and my other family and her friends are trying to do is help. Going, It's going nowhere. It's so frustrating to see that she has absolutely no confidence and is always trying to please other people and not herself. 
you know what, stay tuned because toward the end of the program, I'm going to be talking about how to build up self-confidence. And it's so great that you're trying to help her and, and people pleasing. That's another one. I'll, I'll have to do a segment on that one. So, so thank you so much for that. Feel free to text in the number to call or text is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Um, as you know, I have a clinical practice. I do a lot of virtual um, or online uh, visits for patients. I kind of flipped it over during the, the pandemic and it's working very well for people. People don't have to park. They don't have to drive. <laughs> they don't have to find a parking space. They're not late. They're not nervous. They're not worried that they're going to, somebody's going to come into the office and uh, or see them walking into the office again, fear of other people's opinions. Um, but something that I've also noticed in my clinical practice is that, um, you know, a lot of people refer to the five love languages. If you recall about 30 years ago, the marriage counselor, um, speaker, Gary Chapman wrote the five love languages, how to express heartfelt commitment to your mate. And so, so many people, you know, they come in and I'll, I'll just remind you what the five, um, love languages are. They are words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service and receiving gifts. So a lot of people come into my clinical practice and they are like, they are like, you know, my love language is this and their love language is that and never the twain shall meet. And it's like, you know what? You don't have to choose one of those love languages. You're not just one love language. They're, you know, they can be used as a basis in certain relationships, but there's a lot of misunderstandings about how they are best used in relationships. People think that they have to choose just one. How can you possibly choose one of those love languages and live that every day? Somebody might be um, somebody who wants words of affirmation um, on, you know, during the summer, for example, and when they're doing all the barbecuing or whatever, mowing the lawn, whatever it is. Um, but then on their birthday, they might want a gift. Um, they might want a physical touch gift or a gift of physical touch. So, you know, these five love languages, you, you don't have to choose them. And, and, and that's one of the myths about these love languages. And, and there's a number of, of myths and I, and people come in armed and ready with their love language. And they are also upset when couples don't have the same love languages. Um, you know, love languages are as varied as can be. And, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes couples create their own love language. It doesn't have to be one of those five. There are so many more love languages than the traditional five languages. And there's no way you could find a partner with the exact same love language. That is practically impossible. But, you know, the thing is, it's not about people loving each other or learning to love each other the exact same way that their partner or their spouse loves them. The, the theory of love languages is actually based in learning 
that we all experience reality quite differently. You know that if you grew up in a family with a bunch of siblings, as I did, and, and people have very different ideas of what childhood was like. <laughs> um, I, I know somebody who said that, you know, they were very poor growing up, but then she had brothers and sisters who were 10 or 12 years younger and the parents started to do quite well and the parents were quite well off. So the second set of kids actually had a very, very different life. And so we all experience reality differently. And we have these mysterious internal lives. There are sometimes things that nobody knows what you're thinking. And so a couple definitely does not need to have the same love language. And you can have three or four of them or five of them, and they will change throughout the year and throughout the season, throughout the time, throughout the marriage. Um, you know, the thing about a relationship, you know, it's about bringing the energy, the love, the kindness, what you want to experience in your relationship instead of waiting for that happy ending, if you will, to just be handed to you. You know, a relationship isn't just going to happen. A relationship takes work. It takes understanding. It takes forgiveness. It takes communication. There's just so much more than basing your relationship on one or another love language, your love language and your partner's love language. That said, it is important to know and to respond to your partner's love language. And you know, you want to be in the moment with your partner. And when your partner wants to tell you something or share something with you, you want to be present. That is very important. But it's also important to respond to your partner's preferred love language, but to recognize that there isn't just one playbook. You know, one day it might be they need, you know, for you to listen to them. Another day they might need you to solve a problem. Another day they, as I said, might want a gift. They might need physical attention or physical affection uh, at different times. And, and that may actually be an underlying need as well. Um, so you don't want to follow this love language playbook. You want to be curious. And I just love the word yes and curiosity because you want to know how you can actually satisfy each other. You want to be vulnerable in a relationship. And so you want to take down any barriers that may have been erected that prevent you from being seen or heard. It, you know, it's about intimacy. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard Estelle Perez, Estee Perez talk about intimacy into me, you see. And so you need to be present, uh, with your partner and you need to be open and you need to be vulnerable. You need to be curious and, you know, you need to stay with the program. You need to have staying power because every couple has problems, no matter how perfect it may seem. And I cannot tell you how many people think certain people are perfect or have perfect lives. And it just doesn't happen. There are so many different circumstances that occur along the way. It's how you deal with these issues that arise. It's knowing when to provide your partner with space that they might need. Maybe that's physical space, or maybe that's emotional space or spiritual space. But, you know, it's, it's knowing when, um, the experience will be shared or whether you need some independence, 
you know, and, but it's always about connecting and it's always about just that, that back and forth. And, um, you know, once you get to contempt, once you get past all of this and you're not connecting and you're not curious any longer, um, there's a lot of issues that arise and you don't have a good communicative strategy on how to solve problems. You know, it very rapidly goes to misunderstanding uh, defensiveness and, and it can go to contempt and that's when relationships really get in trouble. And so you want to prevent that early on in the relationship, but it's never too late to start again and to start, um, being more caring, being more curious, doing things together. Uh, you know, the relationship needs to be built on communication, consistency, and the intentions need to be similar because you need to protect and value and, and nourish the bond that you have, the connection that you have. And, and love languages are just one resource. But, you know, I, I do get a little bit like, oh, you know, don't depend so much on choosing this one thing. This is who I am. This is what I like. I like words of affirmation and they never give me any words of affirmation. They buy me these gifts all the time and I don't want gifts. And, you know, it's just, it is just about that, that communication, that understanding. Sometimes ego gets involved so much, especially with gift buying where people want to buy someone, they want to show their love. And so they buy a $5,000 watch <laughs> and uh, it's just not going to cut it. The other person doesn't need that or they buy a $5,000 tennis bracelet and the other person takes it back. And it's just like, that's just not what the partner needs at that time. Maybe the partner needs for you to be present. Maybe instead of give a present, you really need to make some choices in your life to celebrate the love, the nur and the nourishment. You need to nourish your relationship. You need to tend to it as well. Um, because those things can be extremely helpful. I mean, I do like the utility of having the love languages as a foundation, as a basis, as a jumping off point. Um, and it's, so it's good to talk about those five love languages that, you know, they're tangible, they're objective in a way. And, you know, sometimes for people who don't like to express their feelings or talk about feelings, you know, it's kind of, they're kind of easy. They're kind of easy to use and, and play around with and, and talk about and think about, um, you know, what are those things? You know, you can start with, you know, hey, you know, I know that time together, quality time together is important to you. And, you know, how do you feel about, how, you know, the two date nights that we had this week? Or how do you feel about, do you feel that that vacation was, you know, good time together? Because people, people's lives are so busy these days between, between the kids and work inside and outside of the home and, um, caring for parents and, um, just, you know, maybe you're going back to school or, or maybe you're on the road, maybe your job takes you on the road and you're not feeling connected to your partner because it's difficult to feel connected when you're physically apart. And there's a lot of relationships that are physically living apart and you have to connect and call and text and, you know, really, really stay in touch. So overall, I think it's very helpful that 
couples talk about the love languages and make sure that they're happy with the type of love that they're receiving. And, and, you know, know thyself, but know thy partner as well. You know, it's, it's pretty much getting warmer all across this country. And there's, it's a good reason to get up and to get out. There are so many medical conditions that can be prevented by physical activity and an inactive lifestyle can lead to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, it increases depression and mood swings, and it actually makes you age faster. Who wants to do that? That's happening too rapidly as it is. And so exercise is essential for healthy aging, but you think, how am I going to do it? Or people just like get out there and they just hit the pavement hard. They, you know, start running for miles and, you know, and so it's not helpful or they decide not to do it. Before I give you a little plan that might help you, I just want to mention that there are so many benefits to help you achieve and maintain a healthy body. Um, increase, it helps to increase your muscle mass and will reduce your risk for chronic diseases. And, you know, I can relate to this. Research has shown that exercise can lift your mood, boost your mental health, and help you sleep better. It can even enhance your sex life, of course. You know, you feel great when you're exercising. I have to say, recently I was on a, I was away for work because I was giving some presentations on the East Coast, and I was in a hotel for a couple of weeks, and there was no walking anywhere in this hotel, and they had this measly little gym, and which I don't even like gyms anyway, and so I thought, hmm. But, you know, I tried to get in at least, at least to walk, at least to get out there and walk. And, um, but I, I couldn't, there was nowhere to go. And, uh, so then I noticed after about five days, I just like was starting to get sluggish. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't feel like my mind was as sharp. I just felt like I was sleeping too much and I was tired as well. And I thought, you know what, this happens whenever I miss out on exercise and I haven't been exercising. So I literally found myself a track (laughs) and I started walking around the track and then a a bit of a light jog. And then I found a pool at a YMCA. And you know what, that just changed everything for me because I, I had also started to gain weight. I gained seven pounds um, in that five days, I am not kidding. Cause I was eating more. I was craving carbs. I was, I just was not myself. And I know that that has happened to me. I'm, I'm an outdoor exerciser. Um, that's my preference. And I typically like to exercise every day. And so if I don't, then it really, you know, I notice after a few days that it really gets to me. And so, you know, you might notice yourself that your mood is down, your weight is up, you're not feeling as energetic as you maybe have when you were younger and a little bit more active. And, you know, people hit midlife and they just slow down. They just stop. You know, oftentimes women will associate abdominal weight gain with menopause or perimenopause, but it's like, you've got to think of how much activity are you doing compared with what you were doing when you were raising the kids and running around after them and with them. And so it's very important to 
get moving, get grooving. Um, you know, it's, it's so important to move every single day, but if you want to have an exercise program, but you may not know exactly what the exercise program should be. So let me just start with, you know, on a Monday, which is tomorrow, just get up and take a brisk walk for 11 minutes. You know, that's very helpful. 11 minutes is all you need. And, you know, start 11 minutes, get up, get out, make it part of your life. Don't make it part of a, you know, that it's a job or an obligation or something you don't want to do. Especially if you get up and get out in the morning and get some sun, if there is any sun, um, get some sun. Um, That's going to make you feel better as well. A little dose of vitamin D and get up and get out. And, you know, you can even take a rest day the next day if that makes you feel better psychologically. I do think that um, you should get out every day, do something every day, but that's okay. Um, And then the next day you can up that to 30 minute moderate paced walk. Um, You can even do a little bit of a jog, but even over that 25, 30 minutes, maybe walk for five minutes, maybe jog a little bit, just lightly for a minute or two, Um, walk again, have another rest day. That's fine. The next day, even just do the 11 minutes again, get out there and walk briskly for 11 minutes, have another rest day. Then after that, bump that 25, 30 minutes up to a 35, 40 minute moderate pace, brisk walk or a jog, you know? And so that is just a, it's very simple. It's really not a lot of time. It's really a few hours altogether in the week. And believe me, you are going to feel so much better. You know, sometimes in our relationships, you know, it can get, you can not be a great contributor in the relationship. And it might be related to the fact that you just have a little bit of a low mood. Maybe you, you know, are gaining weight. Maybe you're craving carbs. Maybe you're not sleeping as well. Exercise has been known to help people sleep better. Sleep is critical for healthy aging and, and good solid sleep as well. REM sleep is very good. I go to this, go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time in the morning, but get up and get that exercise done. Get out, get some fresh air or, I mean, swimming is awesome as well. Uh, And so that's another one. And you can apply the same thing. Just hit the pool for 10 minutes on the first day. Don't go the next day bump it up to 25, 30 minutes the next day, take a rest day, you know, or even combine it, but make a plan, write it out. What am I going to do this week for my exercise? You really need to be disciplined. You know, you want to start exercising and you've got to be, it's got to be worked into your routine. You got to stick with it. It takes determination and discipline, but you can be healthier and happier at the end of the day. We have a caller on the line. We have Neil from Camrose, Alberta. Good evening, Neil. Hi. I'm sorry. That's okay. I lost my wife last fall. Uh, Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. I'm 72. We were married for 49 years. Oh, 
and I miss her. I'm sure I am you do. I am getting counseling. Uh, I don't have a lot of support people, but I do have hospice that's helping me, and I have mental health that's helping me. But it's those lonely, empty nights that hurt. Of course. I'm sure. 49 years is such a long time. Was it um, an unexpected or No, no. She had cancer, um, and she's been battling. She had uh, uterus cancer. She had skin cancer. She had breast cancer. And then it went into her pancreas and liver. So it's been a bit, bit of a... Maureen, I, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Maybe I shouldn't be... Bert. That's fine. What was her name? Uh, Lena. Lena. Oh, I'm so sorry for you, Neil. So, uh, you it, know... It I'm must just, be so hard. I'm just sort of reaching out a bit. That's fine. I'm sorry. Marina, I don't mean don't to do. Don't apologize. No, you don't need to apologize at all. I'm so glad you called. Thank you. You know, many many people out there are suffering with grief and loss, and um, you know, through and, losing their. Yeah, and being in my seventies, like I find there's so many things that she did that now I have to deal with. She was a beautiful person. She held my she held my hand every day. Oh, how lucky! How lucky were you for the yeah. two of you to have met each other? And that's uh, that's what I have to start dealing with. That I had mm-hmm. forty nine good years with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you may never get over it, but you'll learn to live alongside of it. I. Uh, I don't. I go and see her at the cemetery every day. Oh, that's wonderful. And we talk. I talk to her. I tell her what's going on in my life and my day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'm going to start writing her love letters. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that will be very helpful. Yeah, I think so. It might yeah. help. But grief is a process. You have to go through all of the seasons and the holidays and, you know, certain things that the two of you did together and, um, you know, try to get out with some, some friends or yeah. some family, you know? Yeah, well, I... I mean, I, it's not easy. Yeah, and I, I, have, I have a limited support group with my family, so I... Uh, some of them have been very good. Some of them have been uh, implying that I'm grieving too much. You know, that's that fear of other people's opinions. <laughs> You're not yeah. grieving too much. Um, it, it, you know, everyone has their own grief journey, and, and grief is like the ocean. It's like the tides. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. Listen, you know, I, uh, they- am I on radio right now? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. I I better let you go so you can move on with your show. All right. Well, thank you so much for the call, Neil. Do take care. 
And there are grief counselors. There are specific grief counselors. I know, and I I did have one. Uh, And it helps to some degree, but, you know, you only see them once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. There's all those emptiness in between. That's true. Yeah. Well, you take good care of yourself, Neil. And I th- thank you. I, lo- I like your show. I listen to it on a regular basis, and uh, I appreciate you taking my call. Not at all. Thank you so much, Neil. Uh, you know, life is hard sometimes. Life is so hard. And, and you know what? Death is it's, it's inevitable. I hate to say that. Um, but it doesn't make it any easier. And to be with somebody in what sounds like a loving relationship and a long-term marriage, 49 years, some people don't make 49 months, um, and then to lose someone, and, and then also go through the pain of watching them suffer, watching them get the diagnosis, watching them get another diagnosis, and then having them in palliative care, and then hospice, and seeing them in pain. And I mean, that takes a toll on that, on the caregiver. We've talked about that on the program in the past anyway, but you know, sometimes when you talk about it, you release the pain and, and nobody can tell you how to grieve or or how not to grieve. It's been a very short time. If you ask me since last fall, after being married for 49 years, anyway, just, it's heartbreaking, just so heartbreaking. Sometimes the subject we're going to talk about next can lead to unexpected death. It can certainly cause tremendous angst and have a psychological impact on healthcare providers who make these. Joining me on the program to discuss this is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice many times before. She's a medical doctor, deals in wellness and performance, and helps to reduce burnout, and I'm sure has dealt with many healthcare providers who have made medical errors. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Um, thanks for having me again. Well, thank I just you so like much to... for joining. Go ahead. My pleasure. You know, Neil's phone was call is so touching, and mm-hmm. grief is something that is a human experience. And I like to say, grief for many of us is like a reflection of love, and love is eternal. The mm-hmm. way we express grief can change, but there's nothing wrong in feeling sadness, that emptiness, you know, six months later, a year later, everyone's journey is different. So mm-hmm. I just want to encourage him and everyone that's grieving, like, it's it's for us to decide how we grieve. And 49 years, that's a lifetime. That's more than my life. Yeah. Like I, yeah, it's it, it certainly is such a long time. And you reminded me of something. Um, I, I read somewhere that how much you grieve is related to how much you loved. That's exactly the reflection of love. It's true. Mm -hmm. It's really true. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it cannot be easy. And it's also, you know, a lot of people, they have a hard time uh, with other people's feelings. You know, human nature is we want to make other people feel better. And it's like, you know, get over it. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Shove it under the rug you know? Um, so it, it's just so sad, but I'm glad, I'm glad Neil called in because I'm sure there's a yeah, lot of other too. people out there suffering Definitely. in a, in a similar way as well. It's heartbreaking. Um, 
I wanted to talk about this subject for a long time because it does occur. I, I worked with a nurse one time who made a mistake one night and she quit the next day. I said, you can't quit. You know, it's like, what? You've, you've made an, an error. I mean, nobody died in this particular error. And I said, everybody makes mistakes. And she said, not me. You know, no, mm. I, I have to be perfect. And she never, ever went back to nursing again. And I just thought that was so sad. But medical errors are much more common than, than we realize. Yeah, unfortunately. In, yeah. In, especially in hospitals. And some of the um, errors are some common ones, which are misdiagnosis. Um, and also errors of omission. So, for example not making a patient safe, not putting the bed rails up, for example, a patient falls out of, out of bed, but also a very common one is a, a medication error. So what are some of the reasons for medical errors in the healthcare system? Well, many reasons. One is that we're all human, okay? And no one is perfect. So for that nurse that felt like quitting, it's unfortunate. Um, then there's there's system errors where there's processes that have that are where there are potentially red flags like dangerous medications being kept on the floor and we know that working in that area it can be very stressful and busy there's a lot of noise and errors can be made whether given the wrong dose wrong person wrong medication there's so many errors um, errors in labeling that's an error. Um, errors in cooking up even equipment like catheters and IVs and like there's pretty much room for error at every step of the way and unfortunately there are multiple steps so there's a high chance that an error can occur. Mm -hmm. And as you say we've all made errors we're all human yes. I've made yeah I, I remember the medical error that I made <laughs> um, and you know what you feel awful when mm -hmm. you make a medical error and, and healthcare professionals experience profound psychological effects when they experience it. And as I mentioned, the nurse, and I've, I've seen a number of errors occur as well. I remember attending a code in an operating room and the surgeon had nicked a vessel and the patient was bleeding out. And I mean, I, I have to say, I, I've never felt so badly for somebody in my entire life. And, and I know that that surgeon never went back to work as a surgeon again, either. Mm. Um, what, why is it that, I mean, medical errors are the, one of the, they're a serious public health problem. They pose substantial threat to patients and they're a leading cause of death in, in hospitals in North America. Um, a, a lot of it, you know, we're human beings. And, and human error is is a fact of life. Yeah. Why is it that healthcare providers, professionals experience such profound psychological effect? And what are some of the psychological effects that they actually experience? How, how do they yeah. feel after they've made well, an error? You know, as providers, we're, we hold this belief, first do no harm, right? We want to help patients. It's ingrained in us from the moment we're in training. And there's a high level of expectations for ourselves as being usually high-performing, high-achieving individuals. 
and high expectations from our um, colleagues and the society as a whole. So that compounds and leads to things like anger if you do something, if something goes wrong, guilt, you know, sadness, could lead to depression, suicidal thoughts, or as the two cases you mentioned, an individual completely leaving the profession. And that's a tragedy, mm-hmm. right? My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking about medical errors. Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for staying on the line. Um, fear of punishment, because the word error yeah. is so significant, but fear of punishment makes healthcare professionals reluctant to report errors. There was a nurse in uh, Tennessee, I think it was, who'd lost her job. Uh, the family didn't want her to lose her job over a, a medical error. Uh, errors occur, the wrong medication, too much medication, the uh, medication given to a patient who's allergic to a medication, you know, amputation of the wrong limb. Um, these mistakes have led to improved processes. Um, but what are some of the um, ways, do you think, and we've had a few text messages coming in about, you know, it's the new nurses, it's uh it's the systemic issue in the healthcare system being rushed through the system. Um, you know, I will say it's probably short staffing that can lead yeah. to medical errors and, and exhaustion as well. Um, yeah. But what are some of the things that healthcare providers can do to prevent errors? And obviously not every one of them, but <laughs> just a kind of general overview. We only got about a minute or two left. Yeah, be honest. With the nurses, try your best to advocate for safer work environments with proper staffing, um, you know, knowing your limits when you're dealing with high-risk patients, patients with many comorbidities and um, other risk factors. Now, that's easier said than done when your job, you feel like you're, you, lose, you don't have autonomy. Um, really finding, get, seeking help, like if there's a clarification, have, go ask the person who wrote the orders. Um, talk to someone in, in your, you know, in your group who you can ask. Maybe you're afraid to ask. That often happens too. Sometimes I've seen where nurses are afraid to ask the attending because they're attending's personality. Like you, you see that. But it's working uh-huh. as a team, understanding your human, taking breaks. You know, again, easier said than done when many people are overworked, understaffed, and I think part of the problem is a system problem, not specifically always the nurse or the doctor, whoever, who are the ones necessarily making the mistakes. But mistakes happen, as you said, we're all human. Hopefully we can reduce medical errors and learn from past errors. That's how we've made improvements from learning from things that happened. Absolutely. And maybe even work on the terminology around it as well. Yeah, we certainly do have to do that. And, you know, I mean, there's always risk of bleeding with surgery and, you know, those, those nicks that you hear about and, you know, they are, you know, it's, it's one of the potential complications of surgery. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much as usual for coming on. If you're in your fifties or sixties, you're thinking what is sex over? It has an expiry date. Well, it doesn't have an expiry date, but things might change. Sexual responses certainly evolve as people hit that fifth decade, that sixth decade, seventh and beyond. But it doesn't mean that your relationship, your intimacy will change for the worse. Sometimes it can get better. Sometimes the kids have left 
home. There's more freedom for sexual expression. Sometimes you've decided you're not going to listen to those negative messages that you learned as a child. Um, and sometimes you've decided you have the confidence to explore. Maybe you got into great shape. Maybe you've been listening to the show and you decide to get into great shape and that's improved things in your life. Um, tell me about it. one 877 Unfortunately, sometimes people get into great shape because they're, you know, uh, going outside. Things are happening on the side. Um, it can be a sign. But anyway, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you have noticed things have changed, you might notice things have changed in your 50s, for example. Um, you know, that sexual landscape that you need to navigate or inhabit as you age can be tricky because of age-related issues. And there's a number of sexual health-related issues that occur to men, women, and they like vaginal dryness for women, which I've talked about on the program before, erectile dysfunction, and also low libido. And that can happen for men, women, and they as well, that low libido, that low desire, in part because some people get certain medical conditions because they have a, a genetic predisposition for that or a propensity for it, or they their diet is poor, or they are not moving around, um, a whole host of, of reasons. Um, one thing leads to another, <laughs> one medical condition. You start with one pill and all of a sudden you're taking 20. Um, but so much is preventable through diet, nutrition, sleep, reduction of alcohol, cutting out nicotine. Um, I have a patient recently diagnosed with lung cancer and it's just heartbreaking. You know, a smoker, you don't actually have to be a smoker to, um, have, be diagnosed with lung cancer. But, um, you know, it's just like came, came out of left field for her anyway. Um, so those medical conditions that can become chronic, like back aches and hip problems and sore joints, and they can impact your, uh, sexual health. They can impact your intimacy. But for every single problem, there is a solution. I promise you that. And you can have a fulfilling sex life well into your 80s and 90s. It's The choice is yours. It's really up to you, you know. Um, in the 50s, that's really a critical time for people because that's when the sexual challenges occur, like painful intercourse because it's associated with menopause and the difficulty starting to really notice those challenges with erections. They can start to surface in the fifties. And, you know, I will have to say that a lot of people don't talk about these with their partners. And there's so many men who are embarrassed about erectile dysfunction and you don't have to be, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. And there are treatments. In fact, there are so many treatments for erectile dysfunction, but this is the time you need to start talking to your partner, your spouse, your lover, whomever, you need to talk openly about this, but some of these things can be improved. Now, one way about the erectile dysfunction issue is through diet. You can email me nurse talk at hotmail.com. I'll happily send you off my all in nutrition plan. I have to say for those who abide by it, it's very effective and it can actually lead to it much improved, greatly improved, tremendously improved 
erections. I, I promise you. And this is um, through my patients that I have um, recommended this particular nutrition plan. Um, because a lot, oftentimes people slow down as they age, they decide to sit on the couch, men, as they retire, it's something like they, they start watching like six more hours of television a day. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and so that can lead to a larger abdomen. And, and then if, you know, for a lot of guys who have overuse injuries, they might need a new hip and then it, they might have to wait for a while because it's not emergency surgery. It's considered elective surgery. And so they're not as active as they had been. And then they may start to gain weight as well. And that can affect their mood. The fact that they're not exercising um, so much, it can get complicated. And when you don't talk to your partner about this, if you become silent on it or become mum on it, then things are just going to get worse. Because for the most part, guys in their 50s still feel energetic. They still feel vigorous, but they might start to notice, this is what I've seen in my clinical practice, that that the erections are just not as firm as they once were, in part because testosterone, which is a critical hormone for erections, is on the decline. And so that can be a problem. And you know what? It's so much better to address problems early on than to wait forever in a day um, to address them. And and if, in fact, a lot of guys just expect that the relationship is going to be fine, even though they cannot get an erection. I had one, a waitress one time in a restaurant. She said, can you tell all the guys out there on the radio, on the dating apps that are in their fifties and sixties, you know, mention that they have erectile dysfunction, please, because it's a big turnoff. And so, but oftentimes I've seen that so many times guys just think that it's penetrative sex is still going to happen. It's still supposed to happen and ought to happen yet they're not tending to their own uh, sexual health needs. Women as well at this time of life experience vaginal dryness and low libido often becomes an issue in part because you know, it can be a bit boring. It's like the whole you again kind of thing, but also sex can be painful. And so you can have um, low desire as a result of that because nobody wants to do anything that is actually going to hurt. And about 90% of postmenopausal women will experience some pain when having penetrative sex. But again, a condition that is easily treatable between localized estrogen tablets and um, vaginal suppositories, there's rings, there's a whole host of treatments. And for men, for erectile dysfunction, there's more treatment beyond the nutrition plan. There is um, medication, of course, everybody, um, knows about the little blue pill and the little blue pills competitors as well. Um, but there's also vacuum pumps. There are intracavernosal injections. That sounds dreadful, but it's really not. Um, not that I would know, but that's just what I've heard. Um, but also there's, um, pellets, there's, um, you know, increasing that exercise, increasing that physical activity, cutting that weight down, especially that abdominal weight, which tends to increase as people, as in particular, as men age. So it's just, it's very important that you go to speak to your doctor about the sexual health issues that are starting in the fifties. And, you know, keep in mind that Desire doesn't always come first. Lots of that that started with Masters and Johnson's research in the 50s. Lots of problems around that research. 
uh, small sample size, you know, just the way that it was carried out. Um, so lots of issues, but we actually, you know, desire is responsive. And so it's a biopsychosocial model. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, we have to realize desire doesn't necessarily come first. It might actually be arousal that comes first. And then if you're enjoying it, we call that responsive desire. If you let yourself enjoy the pleasure of slowly becoming physically aroused by being touched or by other kinds of stimulation, then the desire will follow. And this can be yours for the rest of your life. In sex in your 60s, the erections start to get even worse if you haven't addressed them as well. But you know, this is a time in life that people need to become intentional about sex. You need to talk to your partner about it. What is it that you need? What does your partner need? It's not necessarily about the mechanics as long as you're feeling fulfilled, but it is important that you talk about the mechanics, especially with your partner or your healthcare provider, because it can be the canary in the coal mine. It can be indicative of cardiovascular disease. So it's very common in the 60s for men to have erectile function issues and, and face those challenges. And that may lead men to withhold affection. In other words, who wants to start what they can't finish? And that's basically how, how they feel. So again, it is important that you talk to your doctor, get the treatment that is needed. Um, you know, there's a great book, The Truth About Men and Sex, Intimate Secrets from the Doctor's Office, and that was by um, uh, Morgenthaler, Abraham Morgenthaler, medical doctor. So you know what? You're not alone. You're not the only one that is dealing with these issues. Um, testosterone might be another um, option for you. There's surgical procedures. There's new sonic wave energy that might work um, for you. Research is very limited on it, however and it is quite expensive. Um, there's also platelet-rich plasma injections. I mean, some people are desperate, but you know what? There are some things that are tried and true, the medications, although they have side effects, but the intracavernosal injections and the pellets, um, the Sinclair vacuum pump as well are very effective. You know, as couples get older into their 70s and 80s, it, they'll find other ways of being sexual with one another. That's typically what I see in my clinical practice. And, and that differs from the sex that they enjoyed when they were younger. Some people feel um, a lot of sexual expression by that stage because they're kind of looking at the other side and thinking, you know, maybe there's not that many days left. It's time for me to enjoy this. Um, but some couples take the goal of intercourse out of sex. But there's many, many ways that you can give and receive pleasure. And, you know, about 75% of men will have issues with erections in their 70s. But that doesn't mean that they can't experience orgasms. The erections may not be as strong, but you can still have an orgasm without an erection. Um, but a lot of men don't realize that. But I do say get that help for the erection and just get checked out. Get your heart checked out as well. And, you know, some men experience difficulty sustaining, achieving or sustaining that erection. And again, there are so many fixes for this, um, but also there might be a reason behind it. As I said, it could be the canary 
in the coal coal mine. I have lots of patients in their 80s and 90s who they have a new girlfriend, uh, they're getting married, they're dating, they're certainly sexually active because so many people want to remain sexual as they as the age advances. You know, sometimes it's one of the few pleasures left in life um, for people. And sexuality for both men and women and they and should be celebrated regardless of the age. And, you know, oftentimes I will recommend vibrators to my patients or clitoral stimulation devices because, you know, oftentimes I, I have a lot of widows in my clinical practice who miss their husbands. And, you know, it's the first time that they've used um, a vibrator. I had one uh, patient text me uh, when I prescribed the womanizer and she texted me and said, worth every penny. <laughs> and that is true. But you know what? You might still have difficulty, even at that age, talking about sex because of past messages and upbringings and all that kind of thing, because sex is still considered taboo and it was way more taboo back then. So, but you know what? Let's keep the conversation going. Talk about it. If it hurts your knees, you know, let your partner know, try a different position. Anyway, all sorts of ways to handle that. But the most important thing is how you converse about it. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.